So I thought this morning that we would talk about the Bible. No great surprise so far, you may say. And you may have heard Christians sometimes called a people of the book because of the central role that the Bible has in our faith. But actually it would be more accurate to describe us as a people of the story that the book relates. The big story of God and people that the Bible is all about. But when someone asks you, what is that big story all about? Can you explain it to me? I wonder what you say. Now normally with a book you can get an idea from the contents page. But if you try that with the Bible, it looks like this. Most of the uh, chapters seem to just be people's names. And there are some really weird sounding ones like numbers and revelation. So most people who try reading it through as a story from cover to cover tend to give up by about Leviticus, where there's page after page of rules or commandments some of which seem to make some sense, but others that make no sense at all. So it's hardly surprising that many Christians just skip the Old Testament completely because if they're really honest, they don't actually know why it's there in the first place. So they just start the story with Jesus. And that's okay to a point, but the problem with that is that about the first three quarters of the Christian Bible is what happened before Jesus. He came into a story that God had already been involved with for thousands of years. He was born into a family and a people who were part of a story that goes way back to the foundation of the world. So what is that big story of the Bible all about and how can we explain it to people? In a way that makes sense to us personally that's faithful to the biblical material, that's easy to remember and pass on, and that we can make make sense for people who don't know the Bible stories and the Bible characters like what we do. And without using lots of in-house religious language like sin and salvation that basically makes no sense to them. So, in 30 minutes, that's what I want to try to do this morning. No problem so far. The way that we need to tell that story will have to include how it all began, what went wrong, why it went wrong, what God did about it, why Jesus came, how Israel and the Old Testament fit, how the church fits, how we fit, and how the story will end. So I want us to think about the Bible story as if it was a box set. Seasons one, two, and three. Season one that we call the Old Testament. Season two, the New Testament. And season three, the one that we are in now where God invites us into that story. And as we do that, we're going to focus on eight key words that all begin with the letter C. The big story of the Bible is brought to you today by the letter C, as they say on Sesame Street. So all we have to remember is just eight words. And the idea is that once we've got this big picture in mind, it will give us the hooks on which we can hang 
whatever it is that we're reading from anywhere in the Bible and see how it fits in that overall story. So we start with the pilot episode, our first C for creation, where we see God speaking into being an incredible world full of beauty and complexity and mystery. God said, and it was. God spoke, and it was. And the high point of his creation is people, because unlike everything else, we were made in God's image. Each time that God created something, he said it was good. And when he'd finished, he looked at the whole package together, and he said it was very good. So the big story doesn't start with original sin. It starts with original goodness. And despite everything that's happened to creation since then, everything bad that's happened, God has never stopped seeing it that way. And that is why, even in its damaged state and uh, our damaged state, God still believes that it's worth saving and that we are worth saving, rescuing and restoring, not just giving up on us and starting again. And everything that is still good about God's original creation will be part of God's new creation. Once all of the bad stuff that's invaded it and polluted it, like evil and suffering and death, has been taken away and destroyed. As Jesus explained to us in the parable of the wheat and the weeds in Matthew 13. Now, made in God's image is a wonderful phrase, isn't it? But it's also a mysterious phrase, and the Bible doesn't really tell us exactly what it means by that, or at least not until we get to the point where Jesus comes into the story. But I think that it means three things. One is that as human beings, we have the capacity to know God personally, that he designed us to be in a relationship with him. And the story pictures the intimacy of that relationship in Adam and Eve walking with him and talking with him in the Garden of Eden. God being personally present with them, which we see happening again at the end of the story. Second thing is that it is male and female that reflect the image of God. Without both male and female fully and completely involved in everything we do, something vital about who God is and what God is like is missing from the image of God that we're offering to the world. God is not biologically male. And number three is that we were made with the capacity for our lives to be defined by the very thing that more than anything else defines who he is, which is love. God is love. Love for him and love for each other. But here's the thing about love. For our love for him to be real and to mean something, God had to take a risk when he created us. Love always involves risk. You can't actually love someone without taking a risk, which is whether they will love us in return. So the risk that God took was giving us a choice in what we call free will. You see, there, there had to be the option built into creation 
of more than one story to live in. Because if God forced us to love him or forced us to love each other, we would just be like robots doing exactly what we're told, like Siri and Alexa. Although, to be honest, in my case, most of the time, Siri and Alexa don't do what they're told. But I'm sure that that's just me, not them. So when Adam and Eve decided to do the one thing, the only thing, the one little thing that God had asked them not to do, eating fruit from one tree in the garden, the one we call the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, Adam and Eve were exercising that free will. The point of the tree was not that God wanted them to be ignorant about good and evil for the whole of their lives. Because learning what's right and wrong is part of growing up, isn't it? The point was, who was going to teach them? The story is about Adam and Eve saying, we'll decide for ourselves what's right and wrong. Thanks very much. We'll decide for ourselves how we're going to live. What's right for us? They opted out of God's version of the story and took his place. They traded God's truth for their truth. So the question that was posed by that tree was, would they do what God said just because he said it, or only if they personally agreed with it? And of course, that's a question that God asks us as well. Now, when we read in the story about Adam and Eve, we need to know that there's a wordplay going on here that would have been obvious to the original audience. Because the Hebrew word Adam is the word for mankind or humanity. So the story is not just talking about one original man and woman, it's talking about all of us. It's not just painting a picture of what they were like, it's painting a picture of what we're all like. And the Genesis creation story is not telling us how things came to be in a manufacturing sense. It's a theological explanation, not a scientific explanation. So in other words, it's not answering the how questions about creation, which is what we tend to assume because we live in an age of science. It's answering the who questions and the why questions. Who made us and why he made us, who God is, who we are, and why the world is the way that it is today. So as we move on from the pilot episode into season one, we see this very good creation soon ending up in crisis. As the stories in Genesis unfold, we, we see selfishness and independence and this desire to be in control of the story, putting us at the center of the story, increasingly dominating human life. Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, Lamech, the Tower of Babel, all of these stories together are painting a picture, not just of one crisis caused by one couple eating a piece of fruit that they shouldn't have, but a whole series of crises, of broken relationships, with God and each other. There was just the one story, but now there's another story, 
an alternative story, a competing story, where humanity, Adam, has started writing its own story, a me-centered story, and writing God out of the script. And as this alternative story starts to take hold, that image of God that we were created with gets more and more damaged and distorted. Our story and God's story become like two parallel lines moving further and further apart. We see selfishness taking over. What's in it for me? Cooperation to benefit everyone in life becomes competition to benefit the winners in life. And this starts in the very next chapter in Genesis 4. The first thing we read, Adam and Eve's sons, Cain and Abel. And when selfishness takes control, we see that soon leading to violence, personal violence, and then military violence and economic violence, as these Old Testament stories continue to unfold. And somehow, even the natural world is knocked off kilter with earthquakes and hurricanes and floods. Natural disasters mirroring those spiritual and relational disasters. And because the wrong choices that we make have consequences, this selfishness, independence, and desire to be in control of the story causes humanity to lose that intimate personal relationship with God that we were designed for. The kind of people that we became separated us from him. So how could God restore this wonderful creation that started off so very good? Already in the story of Noah and the ark, we see that a straight remake of Adam and Eve isn't the answer. Just getting rid of all the really bad people isn't enough. Because as Solzhenitsyn said, the line between good and evil doesn't run between us and them. It runs through each of us. Already it's becoming obvious that something fundamental about who we are as people and what we had become needed to be transformed. The model of what it means to be human that Adam and Eve handed down to us had to be made new. And it would need God himself to do something to make a new story, a new humanity, a new way of being human possible. So as season one continues, we see this crisis that we've made giving way to a commitment that God makes, a solemn promise that he repeats again and again to different members of the cast throughout season one. The technical word for that is covenant. Another C word that we could use instead. God committing that he will rescue the story. And even as humanity is challenging the story, God is still ultimately in control of the story, directing all of the waypoints along the way. And this rescue mission starts with a commitment to a family that grows to become a nation through an elderly couple far too old to have children. 
God choosing the most unlikely people as the heroes, as he so often does. Abraham and Sarah. And the key verse in this rescue plan is Genesis 12:2, where God says to Abraham, I will make you a great nation and I will bless you so that you will be a blessing. And that is still how God works. He doesn't just bless us so that we are blessed. He does it so that we will be a blessing. And if we're not willing to be a blessing with what he's blessed us with, then we shouldn't be at all surprised if he then chooses to bless other people instead. So God chooses this family to become a nation that will start to model what life should look like when it's lived God's way in a broken and damaged world. And it's at this point that the story separates into two different tracks. Uh, a bit like when one underground line or one motorway divides into two. And what has until this point been the story of all people, for a while becomes the story of one people, a people of God called Israel, running in parallel with the story of the other nations called the Gentiles. So from now on, this story mostly focuses on the top line until we get to Jesus and those lines come together once again. As time passes, this family does indeed grow to become a nation, but it finds itself in slavery in Egypt, where God miraculously rescues them and leads them into a promised land, where they can now live in freedom as their own nation. And as soon as they're free, he sketches out for them what living right looks like, which brings us to our next C for commandments. Not just the famous 10 commandments, but over 600 of them. So why did God give them these commandments or the law as it's sometimes called? Well, it's not because he's a legalist and it's certainly not so they could earn his love or earn their salvation by their own efforts. That is a complete misreading of both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And actually, law is a bad translation. The original word is Torah. And what it means is instructions or guidance. You see, we need to remember that they've been slaves in Egypt for generations. And when you're a slave, you don't have any laws of your own. You don't need any laws. All you have is other people's laws. They tell you what you're going to do and how you're going to live. So now Israel is a nation. So they needed God to quickly give them a comprehensive framework for how they should live as a nation and specifically as a people of God. And that's what Torah was. God said they were not to live the way that people lived in Egypt or the way that they lived in Canaan. Leviticus 18, one to three. Now on paper, of course, giving them all these commandments was very helpful. All they had to do was follow the instructions and they would 
by definition be right with God, right with each other, and doing the right things, personally and collectively. But in practice, of course, it was a bit more tricky. Because the more rules that there are, the more there are to remember, and the more there are to live up to. And as Israel evolved as a, a nation over time, from being a nomadic people to being a settled people, the more interpretations of those commandments they needed as to what those original commandments looked like in these new cultural situations. And different rabbis offered different views on that, which is why people were always asking Jesus what he thought. And as this story continues, we, we see that being the people of God doesn't come naturally to them because the crisis of human selfish and, uh, selfishness and independence is too deep-rooted. And I think what this commandments-based framework was telling them was that ultimately it just isn't possible to be the people that God wants us to be just by living by a set of rules. There aren't enough rules in the world for that. And even if there were, we'd never be able to follow them. Because ultimately, we can't have a relationship with a rule book. Which leads us on to our next C. Uh, an extended period of C for conversations. Where the Old Testament prophets are engaged in a dialogue with the people on God's behalf. It was a battle for hearts and minds. Will the people stay faithful to God and to his story or keep writing their own story instead? Which is the exact same question that God asks us. So we see some conversations where they're struggling to see God in their story, wondering whether he's abandoned them and given up on them, especially when things go wrong in life just like we wonder ourselves. And as we're reading all these stories about Israel, these conversations, we need to realize that they are not there to tell us how bad Israel was. Their story of one nation is showing us things that are true of every nation. Their story of one people is showing us things that are true of all people. If it had been any other nation, then the story would have turned out just the same. So looking at Israel and their stories is like us looking in a mirror and seeing ourselves and our stories. It's what we call a microcosm. Their story is there to create the realization and the desire for God to do something more. Something that will be a, a game changer for the whole human story. To save that story from an unhappy ending. And it's during one of these conversations that the prophet Jeremiah tells them that God is going to make a new commitment. A new kind of covenant. Not a new set of rules, but a new way of knowing God. And that's in Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. He says God is going to intervene in the story in a new way to make it possible for everyone to know God 
to be in a relationship with God in a way that kind of echoes the way that it was at the beginning, breaking the power of the alternative stories that life offers. And so we come to the pivotal moment. Season two has begun. The coming of Jesus, see for Christ. So now, once again, the story opens up to all people and all nations, as it was always intended would happen, as the conversations told us would happen. So season two is when God himself steps into our story, into our world, and into our humanity to rescue the story from inside the story. Jesus came into our story to make it possible for us to come into his story, becoming one of us, becoming one with us. Jesus experienced firsthand the consequences of living in a broken and damaged world as we have to. He shared the traumas and the hurts and the pain that comes with being human so that no one would ever be able to say to God, no one would ever need to say to God, you wouldn't understand because he does. And at the cross, Jesus took all of the destructive consequences of our failed story on himself, including being falsely accused, wrongly convicted, and murdered in cold blood, masquerading as justice. But at the cross, what looked for all the world like a defeat, what looked like the end, turned out to be the very opposite of victory and a new beginning. So with the coming of Jesus, God's future arrived in our present. The kingdom of God was here. The rule and reign of God had begun. So the cross is the pivotal moment in the story when all of the damaging and destructive forces that invaded this world begin to go into retreat and go into reverse. A bit like when the snow begins to melt in Narnia and the power of the white witch begins to fade. And Jesus' healings and miracles were great, but they weren't the end game. They were signposts pointing to how one day the whole of creation will be cleansed and healed and set free from everything that has spoiled it and harmed it and taken it captive. Every enemy of human life will be gone. The ultimate enemy defeated. Death itself and everything in human life that leads to death. Jesus became the first of a new kind of people of God, according to a new pattern, a new way of being human. And the New Testament pictures this by contrasting what Adam did with what Jesus did. Romans 5 says that sin and death came into the world through Adam when he exercised his free will and changed the course of human history. 
But the defeat of sin and death came into the world through Jesus when he exercised his free will and changed the course of human history. So the gospel is God's invitation to us to change stories, to leave behind the story written for us by the first Adam and join the story written for us by the second Adam, a story that leads to life, to fullness of life, instead of a story that leads to death. And through the Holy Spirit, he gives us the power to say no to the competing stories that life wants to offer us. And then in season three, the resurrected Jesus offers us the opportunity to be part of the story by joining the cast. And just as Israel was called to be a people of God, we too are called to be a people of God who will also model what it looks like to do life together, to love together, to give together and to serve together. Not just as isolated individual Christians, but as his people. A people who don't just want to be blessed, but who also want to be a blessing. A people who together will show the world around us who God is and what he's like and how he's changed us and how he can change them by the power of the Holy Spirit. Offering them an invitation to change stories, to join us in his story. And what's so exciting about this season three that we're in is that we've been invited not just to believe a story, but to be in a story and to help to shape that story. Not just to repeat the old episodes or watch the reruns, but to record new episodes, to take that story forward in ways that are faithful to the past characters, faithful to the episodes that they recorded, faithful to the story so far, and most of all, faithful to the divine author who's there with us in person through the Holy Spirit, working with us and directing us on the set. And then finally, the season three finale, when we see how it's all going to end, how the story will come to its capital C completion. Or if you want the, the technical word, it's consummation. And just like there was an original creation at the beginning of the story in the very first book of the Bible, so too there is a new creation at the end of the story in the very last book of the Bible. One that is also described in picture language. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. So once again, we see God speaking and a new creation 
coming into being. And the reason that there is no more death or mourning or crying or pain is because the old order of things has now gone. And the good news of the gospel is that because of Jesus, this is what's coming towards us. We are not just going to the future. The future is coming to us. So when we pray in the words of the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, that is what we're praying for. In other words, what we're saying is, Lord, would you bring some of the way that things will be in the future into the way things are now, in the life of the person that we're praying for. So for us, living in season three is kind of the best of times and the worst of times. It's the best of times because Jesus has come and we see the first fruits of that future through healings and miraculous answers to prayer. But it's the worst of times too because there are still tears in our eyes to be wiped away. There's still death and mourning and crying and pain. So we need to trust him that in God's good time, he will complete the story when Jesus returns. While we are living in this now and not yet time. So that's been one way that we can think about the big story of the Bible. Now, obviously, you don't need to tell it like that. There's more stuff you could include and there's stuff you could leave out. There's stuff you could say differently and some things that you could emphasize more. But here's how it looks on the timeline that we looked at earlier when we add all the rest back in with a few scriptures at the end that you can look at later. Anna, maybe I can ask you and the band to come back. Thanks. So, what is this story saying to you and to me? The big story of the Bible is really a tale of two stories. It's not an invitation to believe something. It's an invitation to do something. To bring my story into his story. To exchange a story in which I am at the center for one in which God is at the center. Where he is writing the script. So here's a question that maybe you can ask yourself. Am I really living in God's story, completely in God's story? Or have I just made my story a bit more religious? Is some of it God's story, but without the inconvenient bits? Am I in the cast, playing my part? Am I living and loving and giving and serving in the story? Or am I maybe just watching it happening around me from a seat in the auditorium? Which story am I really living in right now? Is it God's story or is it my story? 
Or is it maybe a bit of both? So today, I think, is God's invitation to us to decide to change stories, to really change stories, and to leave the last bits of our old story behind and to fully and completely join him in his story.